Well, this week, as Kevin said, we begin a three-week series that we're calling New Year, New Life. And I know that we're past, we're a bit past the time when people are focusing on the beginning of a new year. New Year's Eve and New Year's Day already seem so long ago, don't they? I mean, think about it. It just seems like so last year almost. And, uh, but I feel comfortable calling this series by this name because the series isn't purpose to help us figure out what we can do in this new year to bring new life to our own lives. No, this is a series focused on three back-to-back moments that we find in Mark 5 where Jesus gives new life to people. And these are, we'll be looking at three different people who had very specific needs in their lives and they receive a new beginning, they receive new life from Jesus. And what we ultimately hope to see over these three weeks is that just as Jesus clearly knew exactly what these three people that we're going to look at, what they needed, he also knows in the same way and longs to bring to us exactly what we need in our lives. And so the bottom line is this. This series is meant to encourage each one of you into a deeper faith, a deeper faith in God's knowledge of you and his desire to bring healing and peace into your life because we're well aware of the fact that in the kinds of days that we're in, it's easy to think maybe God isn't paying attention. That's where we're going with the series. Um, So let's get rolling. I wanna get right to Mark. So if everybody can grab a Bible, or some method of reading the scripture, it'd be helpful. Turn to Mark 5. It's on page 833 if you're using the House Bible. And before we jump in, first I want to welcome everybody online. Glad you're with us. It's warm in here, isn't it, folks? Come on back. <laughs> um, but. I want to pray for us too, so let's have a word of prayer and then we'll jump into this passage. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to study your word with your people. My prayer, Lord, is that your spirit will speak through me and that what we do today will not only bring you honor, but will bring joy to your hearts and joy to ours as we learn more about your love for us. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, before we jump into Mark 5, I want to give us a bit of context. Chapter 4 ends with Jesus and the disciples crossing the Sea of Galilee during the night in a boat. And during this dark two-hour or so voyage across the Sea of Galilee, a vicious storm comes up, and the disciples are terrified. They think they're going to drown. And they wake up Jesus, who somehow is sleeping in the back of the boat. And when he wakes up, he orders the wind and the waves to be silent. He says, stop. And they do. And immediately, the disciples are even more terrified than they were of drowning. They're terrified of the fact that when Jesus said, settle down, the wind and the waves did. And then they ask a question of one another, 
they say, uh, who is this man? Who is this man? And from that point on in the Gospel of Mark until way into the book, what happens is that everything that we find happening in this book is up to a, a place pretty far into Mark, is answering the question, who is this man? And so as we start reading the first verse of chapter 5, we already know that Jesus is a man that the wind and the waves obey. Now that's saying something. But then we move on, and here's what we read in the first verse of chapter 5. So they arrived at the other side of the lake in the region of the Gerasenes. Now, I want to stop there and say we, we are not certain of the exact location of what Mark calls the Gerasenes. But what we do know is that, th and this is important, that this area was primarily a Gentile region. Uh, and, and it's a Gentile region that because of the history between the Jews and the, these people that lived in this part of the world, they had what I would call at best a tentative relationship with the Jews. In fact, we can see this tentative nature of the relationship between Jews and the Gentiles in what Mark tells us in verse 2. It says, when Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out from the tombs to meet him. Now, it's interesting to me that the way that Mark describes this whole story, it sounds like the only person that ever gets out of the boat is Jesus. And it could be very well that the disciples were unsure about coming into contact with Gentiles. But they would certainly have been unsure about coming into contact with a man possessed by an evil spirit who was coming out of the tombs. And in the Greek, it adds, it says, when Jesus climbed out of the boat, it says, immediately, immediately the man confronted Jesus. This man's arrival happened quickly, and it probably caught everybody off guard. And when it says that this man came out of the tombs, do not think of the local cemetery that we have, or the cemeteries that we have. Don't think of a modern cemetery at all tombs at that time were hollow places that were carved out of the sides of rocky places or in cl uh, cliffs, things like that. And what people would do is they would bury their relatives in those spaces. Actually, they wouldn't bury them at all. They'd just stick them in those holes that were carved in there, and they'd leave them there to rot for a year. And then after a year, they'd come back and they'd reopen those tombs and they'd scrape the bones out and they'd put them in little boxes called ossuaries. And Jews considered tombs to be terribly religiously unclean. You can imagine, they're just a place for dead bodies to rot. And Gentiles thought of tombs as just nasty. And since Gentiles were generally considered unclean to Jews as well, this man who is an unclean Gentile, who's living among unclean tombs, and he's possessed by an evil spirit, you can see why the disciples might not have wanted to get out of the boat. 
And verse 3 through 5 is an aside that gives us some additional information about this man who's running out of the tombs. It says, this man lived in the burial caves and could no longer be restrained even with a chain. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrists and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night he wandered among the burial caves and in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. This isn't bad enough. Luke's gospel tells us that he was also naked. The Jewish rabbis had come up with four signs that a person was uh, inhabited by an evil spirit. The first one was, if you lived among tombs, you had to have an evil spirit. And the second one was, if you ran around at night, you, had, you probably had an evil spirit. Or if you tore your clothing off, you probably had an evil spirit. Or if you destroyed your own flesh in some manner, you probably had an evil spirit. This man exhibited how many of those signs? All four of them. All four of them. Plus, he had otherworldly, destructive, physical strength. And that was another sign that somebody was probably inhabited by an evil spirit. How he'd come to be inhabited by this evil spirit, we are not told. But this was a Gentile area. There were all sorts of pagan practices, religious practices there, and they, they gave him ample opportunity to come into contact with the dark side. And my goodness, the suffering this evil spirit was bringing to this man's life. The Greek tells us that he was always in the tombs or in the hills of the wilderness. He was always crying out. He was always cutting himself. Everything he was doing showed that all he wanted was to escape this torment, even if it meant destroying himself. And then we read this in verse 6. When Jesus was still some distance away, he saw him, ran to meet him, and bowed low before him. With a shriek, he screamed, why are you interfering with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had already said to the spirit, come out of this man, you evil spirit. Now, don't think for a moment that what this demon said through this man is in any way showing respect to Jesus. Yes, the word that gives us bowed low, it's prosecunason. It means, it means to honor someone, to show honor by putting, getting down low enough to where you can put your forehead on the ground. Yes, it does mean that. But what this demon says, and it's clear that he knows exactly who he's talking to, is anything but honoring. First off, he is screaming at the top of his lungs. You don't scream at somebody that you're trying to show honor to. And what he says first is literally this. It's what to me and to you. Now, it's, it's ti emoi kaisoi 
in the Greek, and this was a well-known colloquial expression that is almost impossible to translate into English. I have read so many attempts at it. Uh, here are some attempts. Uh, why are you interfering with me? Or what do you want with me? Or what do I have to do with you? But the two best that I've ever I found was one was bug off and mind your own business. And the other was, what does any of this have to do with you? His first words to Jesus essentially said, leave me alone and what are you doing here anyway? He's screaming these at Jesus. Now, first off, well, wait, wait, just let me back up. Do not think for a moment that this demon saying, Jesus, the son of the most high God, is honoring. When he says, he calls Jesus by his earthly name, this was a first century sign that this demon thought that he had some sort of power over Jesus. We don't have time today to go into all of the first century cultural realities related to knowing somebody's name. But remember, this is a world where it's almost impossible to know anybody's name. You don't have an ID, there are no pictures, there's nothing, you run into somebody on this. It's hard to tell people apart, they all kind of dress the same, and if you know somebody's name, you know something about them. And this demon says, I already know who you are, Jesus and I know all about you. Using his name says that. And calling him the son of the most high God, now that can sound good to us. Jesus, the son of the most high God. Well, let me tell you something. The only time that the, comment, the statement most high God is ever used in the Bible is by Gentiles in the Old Testament who just think the Jews God is just one and they use this phrase when they're saying, oh, you have the most high God and they actually believe there are tons of gods and the Jews God isn't all that special. He's just one of many. So he uses a name that's offensive to start with. So this too was meant to offend Jesus. This demon greeting Jesus by screaming out that he should mind his own business, all the while referring to Jesus in a way that says, I know all about you, I know who you are, and your so-called father, he isn't all that important. That's what he says when he says this. But then he says the unimaginable, he says, I beg you not to torture me. Now just think about that, this demon who had been torturing this man for who knows how long, has the nerve to beg Jesus, to beg him. And he's using God's name, no less. He says, not to torture him. How dare he? Who does he think he is? And how like evil that is. Not to want anything back that they give to others. Then in verse 9, we read this. Then Jesus demanded, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, because there are many of us inside this man. Then the evil spirits, notice the shift into plural here, it all shifts into plural. The evil spirits begged him again and again not to send them into some distant place. Jesus wanted to know exactly who he was dealing with here. And in their day, when you forced someone to give you their name, that was a sign that you had power over them. And this was a way for Jesus to let this demon know who was in charge. And since Jesus was in charge, the demon had to answer him. 
And he says this, my name is Legion because there are many of us inside this man. Now, a legio is a powerful Roman military unit. It's 6,000 soldiers. It's 120 horsemen and their horses and all of the other numerous people it takes to support 6,000 soldiers and 120 horsemen and their horses. This is a huge force in the Roman world. And, and we need to step back for a moment and think about this demon calling himself legion for a second. Now, this demon could have been telling the truth. Uh, the terrible truth could be that this man somehow had multitudes of demons living within him, possibly thousands. And they'd all decided to call themselves legion, the legion, and this, these demons could have simply been telling Jesus the truth that this was the name they were using. That could be true. Or the demon could have used this name as an affront. It wasn't a real name at all. It was just a way of intimidating Jesus to say, look, Jesus, you asked our name, the name's Legion, and you are way in over your head here. There are so many more of us than you. You cannot possibly deal with us. Could have been that. Or this demon could have been just flat out lying. Yes, he had infected this man's life, but he was trying to overstate his presence in the hope of scaring Jesus. He was just one lying demon. We don't know the truth here. Scholars debate. What we do know is that these demons didn't want Jesus to do to them what they'd been doing to this man. They say, don't send us into some distant place. You mean like some distant place like the tombs or the hills of the wilderness? Mr. Demons, again, how dare they? It's just like evil. Next we read, there happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby. Send us into the pigs, the spirits begged. Let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission. The evil spirits came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the entire herd of about 2,000 pigs plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned in the water. Now, I know these verses bother, bother modern readers. We all feel sorry for the pigs, right? And a little bit for the herdsmen who took care of the pigs, but we all, this is just bothers us. 2,000 pigs have to drown. Well, let me just tell you that um, Jewish readers, of course, wouldn't have had an issue with this at all. They considered pigs to be the most disgusting of all the unclean animals. They still do. Plus, and this is important, both Jews and Gentiles believe that you could kill a demon. How do you think the ancient world felt it was possible to kill a demon? You drowned him. So this is a picture of what? This is an, a picture for ancient readers of a great victory of good over evil. We just killed off maybe one, but maybe at least 2,000 demons. 
And I've read all sorts of theories about what was happening here. Theories like that this is a statement by Jesus against the Roman Empire, or that this is a statement by Jesus that he's all on board with the law. And these sorts of theories go on and on and on and on, but you know, I don't believe for a minute that Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen when he gave permission to the demons to go into that herd of pigs. What we do know did happen was the same chaos erupted in those pigs as had been in that man forever. The same sort of chaos that the demons had been causing in that man. The pigs like that man wanted to destroy themselves if that's what it took to end the presence of those demons in their lives. I, I don't think we can blame Jesus here at all. What we see is exactly what we should expect to see when evil enters our world. We should expect to see chaos and confusion and fear and death. And then verse 14 goes on to tell us, the herdsmen fled to the nearby town and the surrounding countryside spreading the news as they ran. People rushed out to see what had happened and a crowd soon gathered around Jesus and they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons and he was sitting there fully clothed and perfectly sane and they were all afraid. Then those who had seen what had happened told others about the demon-possessed man and the pigs and the crowd began pleading with Jesus to go away and leave him alone. There is a lot we could say about these verses, but I just want to point out two things. First, can you believe the change in this man's life? He's clothed. He has his dignity back. He's in his right mind. And Luke's gospel tells us that he was sitting at Jesus' feet in a position that showed he was ready to listen and to learn. What a change. Jesus had given this man new life. Sadly, sadly though, and this is the second thing I want to point out, Mark doesn't tell us at all that there's any expression of joy in the crowd that day, seeing that change. Even though this community had been dealing with this man, it says, often and for a long time, the response was fear. Mark tells us that they begged, there's that word again, they begged Jesus to go away and leave them alone. Leave them, leave them alone. This is a sad moment. Jesus has just shown the crowd that he had come to free people from bondage and give them new life. And all they wanted was for Jesus to go away. They were terrified. Probably they were afraid that what this Jewish magician would do to them besides kill their pigs. What a mistake. And yet Jesus immediately complies with their request. Verse 18 says, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. But Jesus said, no, go home to your family and tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he's been. So the man started off to visit the 10 towns of that region and began to proclaim the great things that Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed at what he told them. Now, we don't know much about this man, but we know these two things. He had a home, and he had a family, and can you imagine that return? Can you imagine it? 
What a new life for everyone, for everyone. And while Jesus knew that this man needed to be delivered from the torture of this demon, even more so, Jesus knew that what he really needed was to be reunited with his family and given the opportunity to be seen publicly by as many people as possible. I'm sure that the people in the 10 towns of that region had heard about him and that many of them had had to deal with him in some way over the years. And these people all needed to see this deliverance with their own eyes and hear about it with their own ears, hear the story of what had happened to him, and then confidently be able to welcome him back in to the community. And Jesus knew that this man, he didn't need to travel back to Galilee with Jesus and his disciples. No, he needed to go from town to town, from person to person, and proclaim exactly what Jesus had done for him. And while Mark is a bit vague about this, what seems to have happened is the next time that Jesus showed up in this area, rather than being met by a fearful crowd begging him to leave, large crowds gathered almost immediately out of the desire to get close to Jesus, and my bet is it's because they'd seen and heard what Jesus had done from the lips of a man who'd been given new life. So what do we do with this story? Well, first we need to think through how this story answers the question, who is this man? We already knew that Jesus is a man who can control the wind and the waves, that he has authority over the physical world. And now we've learned that he has ultimate authority over the spirit world, and in particular, the dark spirit world. Mark has shown us that Jesus is unmoved by the presence and the power of the dark forces, whether that's one unclean spirit or a legion of them. But what we've also seen is that this man, Jesus, this man, Jesus, is moved deeply by the results of the brokenness in the world and what it does in our lives. And something that may be even more important, that Jesus is deeply moved by what brokenness has done in our lives, no matter what our pasts might have been, no matter what we may have done to bring ourselves to this place. Mark shows us that Jesus' intentions are singular whether a person is a Jew or a Gentile, whether that person is clean or unclean, Jesus's intention was and still is to bring freedom and new life to those who are under oppression. Jesus is someone whose desire is to see everyone living freely and peacefully with dignity and purpose and he will gladly take on the forces of hell to see that it gets done. What the man in today's story needed was to first be freed from bondage, but then what was best for him was to be known in his community as the new man that he'd become because he'd met Jesus. 
This is why Jesus sent him home to his family rather than having him join the disciples. Jesus knew that what this man needed more than anything was to be welcomed home. And I am so thankful that Jesus knows exactly what is best for me in my times of need. He knows exactly what's best for you in your time of need. Sometimes it can seem like we're out there on our own, that no one, especially the Son of God, is paying attention. But this passage tells us that Jesus is paying attention and that his first response to seeing someone who the entire rest of the world wants nothing to do with, and for good reason, Jesus' first heart is towards saving them and giving them freedom and dignity and a return to their home to give them new life. I think this is a wonderful message at the beginning of this year, especially with all that's happened over the last couple of years. And while I'm fairly certain, though I can't go out on a limb and be 100% certain, I'm pretty sure there's nobody here that has a legion of demons in them. But you know what? That's not the issue. The issue is, do we trust Jesus? Do we trust that Jesus is concerned for us in the middle of the great storms of our life? And do we trust that he will continue to be with us and help us and move with us into the uncertainty of the future? You know, this week we have seen in this passage the authority and the power of Jesus. And over the next two weeks, we will see his heart. And what we will find to an even greater degree than we have seen in this week is another answer to the disciples' question, who is this man? This Jesus is a man whose heart is filled with love for you. And this man knows you, and he knows what's best for you. And no matter where you find yourself this morning, he longs to open his arms to you and give you freedom and peace and rest and joy in this new year. In this new year, Jesus is opening his arms to you and he wants to give you a new life beginning right now because he loves you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you that yours is the victory. And this world, Lord, is sometimes hard to imagine that yours is the victory. But we trust you and thank you that your word tells us that you love us, you know us, and you only want what's best for us. Help us to live into that truth, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.